Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us here again for another episode of our FM live podcast. I'm very excited today because not only joining me is my colleague and friend, Stephanie Jeans, who we get the opportunity to do family ministry alongside one another. Stephanie, you want to say hello to everyone? Hey, friends. But also we have a very special guest and friend and colleague and just awesome partner in ministry, uh, Mr. Kyle Johnson, who is the associate pastor of Word Tabernacle right here in Rocky Mount serving alongside of us. We are super grateful that he is with us today. Um, so I'm going to ask him at this point to introduce himself, share a little bit about him, um, and then we're going to talk about some, some hard stuff, some good stuff, and hopefully some encouraging stuff as well. But we'll have a prayer when he gets done introducing himself, and we will jump right in. So Kyle, welcome. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to hear a little bit about you. Thanks, Daniel. So, hey, y'all. My name is Kyle uh, Johnson, as he said, and I serve as associate pastor at Word Tabernacle Church. I've been on staff there now for about eight years. I have the most amazing and phenomenal wife, Danielle, who is so great, uh, and two amazing princesses, um, Kendall, Elizabeth, and Olivia Noel, who are three and seven. Uh, so a little bit about me is that I'm Jersey born, uh, was born in North New Jersey, moved to Rocky Mount when I was 13. And um, I attended the great Northern Ash, then matriculated into uh, the East Carolina University, uh, where I studied English education. So I used to be a high school English teacher. Um, but I graduated early from ECU, and so I stayed on, on campus, and I did um, college ministry for a year and a half, and did an internship with Campus Christian Fellowship there for a year and a half before moving back to Rocky Mount and teaching in Edgecombe County at North Edgecombe High School for three years, um, before transitioning full-time into um, full-time ministry with youth ministry, came on as the middle school director, and then became the middle school, high school, so general youth, and then overall now I serve the birth through 29-year-old population at the church, as well as other things. Um, I, and especially in context of the podcast we were recording, uh, I would say that when I, um, I, I was adopted when I was in um, high school uh, by a white family, uh, and they're super dope, the McCarran hands, that's um, mom, dad, brother, sister, a whole situation, uh, and I am now finishing up, almost done, um, with my MDiv from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest. And so it has been an interesting journey, but I'm loving all the steps where God's leading me in these spaces. Wow. And you're finishing up your MDiv. And did you tell me the other day that Hebrew is left on the Yes. On the so doc? I'm in Hebrew too. I decided to tackle Hebrew one and two on summer courses. Um, so God bless. Uh, uh, <laughs> but almost I remember, done. <laughs> I remember some of that. You're going to have to refresh my memory <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> Well, Kyle, thanks for uh, thanks for sharing. You know, just a, a glimpse into your your story and you know where you come from, and we want to dig into a little bit of that because I know that you've got you've got much to much to teach us and share with us. But before we we jump into that, let's have a prayer together. Um, pray for you, pray for me, for Stephanie, for our families, and um, all those that are listening, and uh, we'll we'll go from there. So let's pray, Father God. We thank you for today. We thank you for the beauty. Lord, that you have provided in, in all things. God, and today we come before you and ask for your discernment, ask for your guidance as we 
Lord, have a conversation together with our friend Kyle and Stephanie, and, and Lord, that the input that we have on certain things that we're walking through, whether it be our own personal stories or the way that we collaborate together, you've called us for such a time as this. And God, I pray that you help us to provide hope and encouragement. Thank you for Kyle, thank you for Kyle and his willingness to join us today. We also ask that you lift up our families. Lord, both those in, in, our, in at First Methodist, those that were Tabernacle, but Lord, those in our community and beyond. God, wrap your arms around them. Offer them today the things that they need. And God, I pray that you and only you will be glorified for those blessings because we know that you are the provider and you have brought them to us, God. But we also ask that you challenge us. Challenge us, Lord, in ways that uh, helps us to grow closer as disciples of Christ in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, I pray this prayer. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we have asked Kyle to come and join us today because we have been, all of us have been burdened by the things that we have witnessed on the news, maybe even things we've seen in person about all this going on in our community and even in our world when it comes to racial diversity. Um, I know that as I have, you know, scrolled through media and watched the news and things, I've been bothered because what I see is, is I see God's kids not getting along with one another because he does promise us that we are unique creations of his. And, but with that comes a lot of misunderstanding. And I think I'm, I'm right when I say that that comes a lot of misunderstanding and, and ways that we need to just better learn about one another, um, about where one another comes from. Um, and to truly, uh, truly understand that we are creations of God and that he's given us a, a purpose and a calling. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we're going to jump off today. Um, we're not sure that's where we'll end or, or where God will lead us in, in the process. But I think that the more to be more specific, Kyle, I'm going to start by asking you just some things that, that you may notice when it comes to uh, racial diversity within our churches. I mean, a lot of times we're guilty of saying, yeah, we, we can play in the same sandbox together, black, white, red, yellow, whatever. But is it true? Is it true? That and Daniel is an amazingly loaded question. And <laughs> I will say that, so my experience, I became a Christian in the evangelical church here in Rocky Mount. And I would say I loved every bit of my experience. I will truly say that, like, um, the discipleship I got, the, the growth I got as a Christian, um, it sparked my, my passion and my love for discipling other people. And that's why I ended up staying with campus ministry after college. Um, I would also say that being a Black person, so I'm a whole Black man, and I was in a white Christian space. I do not remember anyone ever coming up to me and ever saying I don't belong there. I do not. I remember people when I would um, raise my hand and rock during worship. I remember people thinking, that's beautiful worship. <laughs> You're so free. <laughs> like, I remember being loved. I remember being embraced. And I would say that my experience at that church, um, it shifted me in many ways, in amazing ways. I would also say that my entire Christian experience was in that church. And, um, I picked up on a lot of non-spoken concepts while there. 
Um, I would say I'm a whole black man. And I remember when I was at ECU, I walked into the Black Student Association trying to just connect with black people because I was very much so white cultured and in a white world. And I remember thinking, I feel so uncomfortable here because I do not know how to connect with these black people. And I remember thinking, like, I'm, I'm going to be here, but I'm going to sit and just listen because I don't know what to say. I don't know how to connect and I feel awkward here. And I also remember thinking that the black church was subpar. And I remember feeling and thinking that black theology wasn't solid theology and that black worship was a bunch of emotionalism without any sound doctrine. And I also remember thinking like black people deserve a platform when talking about blackness, but black people aren't often invited to the church to talk about, you know, systematic theology. And I would say that there's all these small things that happen along the way that train us to believe or to think certain things about populations. So typically, I would say that while we all want to play in the same sandbox, um, we are sub subtly like taught that we don't belong in the same sandbox or that the white sandbox is the best sandbox. And Americanized Christianity has been um, tainted with America and has been tainted with racial cultural like preference instead of being fully focused on being transformed by the gospel. And that's hard for people to say and to think, but here's my struggle. I'm a black man, black Christian, and I walked away from a white space thinking that black church is subpar, period. And it took me a long time to get over those biases, even though no one ever said them to me. And I think that that's the biggest struggle people have is that we don't understand it's like it doesn't take someone sitting down and training you to think a certain way it's about how things are received it's about the small comments it's about how you perceive people and how you choose to interact and not to interact with people and it wasn't until i started going into black spaces that i realized that my biases were completely unfounded and absolutely ridiculous and um i think that while it's difficult to play in other sandboxes um, it's the only way to get to the point where we actually want to be in those other sandboxes. Um, I think in our current context, like, you know, it's hard for me, honestly, to step into a place and say, like, let's worship together. And then I tell you about, like, my personal experience as a Black person in our society. And then I'm told that I'm overthinking it. It's not real. Or finding reasons why my experiences should be okay when they're when they shouldn't be it's hard to show up and worship with someone to play in the sandbox with someone who once you get out the sandbox um trash talks your family and doesn't want you to have access to the playground at all um and so it's kind of like telling this I'm not, I'm not trying to like destroy this analogy <laughs> but it's kind of like telling kids who are bullied in a classroom all day long by their bully and tormented to then go into the playground and say act like y'all are best friends right. and that's not how it works when in in a real life so i'd say that it is a very segregated time and it's really difficult it's beautiful the kingdom the gospel can make us all equalize at the cross spiritually but then we have to do the work where we um, equalize each other socially and put that that into action so it's a mixed bag I think mm -hmm. because somehow like I think we would all agree and we teach it like one of the very first songs I ever grew up learning Jesus loves the little children red yellow black and white you know but when you look at our churches even now Sunday is still one of the most segregated days I mean I would say hour but we don't all meet at 11 anymore but I can remember thinking 11 o'clock on Sundays is still the most 
segregated hour there is. Why? Like that's supposed to be a time where the church universal is coming together. But when you look around for most people, we're all looking at people that look, smell, act, grew up the way we did. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're, we're willing to sing about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the song we teach at one of the youngest ages in the church, but are we really living it? Well, I think that comes down to a a pseudo acceptance. And I think we have to like, look back at the history. A lot of times we're looking at, oh my goodness, my hair is falling out, but we're not looking at what products we've been using to take care of our hair. And so in the same way, when, you know, I took a um, Baptist history. And of course, I know like w- there's lots of different denominations and people who will be listening to this, but I just look at, take this as an example. You know, the Southern Baptist Convention literally was established so that because white people didn't want black people to have a voting voice in the church, black people and white people worshiped together, or went to church together when black people were enslaved. But once black people were freed socially, uh, that's the, the key thing, it's not about a spiritual status, about the social status. Once black people were freed socially, then the white Um, people in those churches said, no, we don't even want you in our space because you being here means that you have an equal voice. It means that you have an equal vote and an equal influence. So that's when segregation of the churches started. It was an intentional thing done by white Christians in in America. And so when we, a lot of times we say, oh, it's because of worship differences. It's because of the way we decide to sing or how we express ourselves in worship, but that's not what it is. So we need to like undo the things that were done um, and now the struggle of after generations of that, and like I said, I thought that black church was subpar because of sub, sub things that were taught to me. But the struggle that is now that when you look at churches that are multi-ethnic, they aren't always multicultural. And about 95% of them are led by white men. Black people and people of color are used to in our society having to submit to white authority and white leadership. But white people in our society tend to have a very hard time submitting to black voices. And so in the church, diversity happens. It's when people of color walk into white spaces and say, we'll be here with you. It's very rare that you'll see white people going into places of people of color and saying, we'll be here with you. Um, And I mean, we can look at that even in our local context of churches. Everyone has their reasons why they end up at their churches. Some people are there for generations, some people like this, that, and the other. But when it comes down to it, the most diverse churches we have locally are led by white men. And that's a trend that goes across the nation. Like that's not an isolation. So I think we have to be real, like be real about our social dynamics if we're going to actually try to figure out how to fix our dynamics in terms of collective worship as a church. Now, also, we love joining churches when the black people can show up and sing. That's like those United Worship Services, which I, I, I host, like I MC them, I'm here for them, right? I just want to be very clear. I am not anti-churches blending together for worship services. But even when we look historically at that, it's like black people coming to dance and sing and entertain that comes down to like racial bias in itself but we love it when we can worship together we just don't love it when we have to submit to the person's teaching and even when you look at churches that try to diversify their staff typically they hire a black person to be the youth pastor um, because the adult white people don't want to submit to black authority but the youth will and then typically the only way that that black person survives being on that staff is if one of those, if they're married to a white person, 
because two black people in the church realize the, the black couple realizes that there's too much tension here and no one really wants to deal with the root issue. Um, it's a journey. We have, the church collectively has years and years of work to do in America, but it's worth taking the first steps to get down that path. Well, Colin, you mentioned too about the the social differences and all that. And I think one thing that I, I have always struggled with is the fact that, you know, in in a white church, and tell me if this exists, you know, in the opposite effect in a, in a, a church of color, but like, I desire for God's people all to be a family and not the white church to have something where, you know, people of color come in and it's, they're a mission, you know, because I don't want that, you know, I don't desire that at all because I do believe that, that God calls us all to be in unity. And I think you spoke a lot of truth to us just now about, you know, struggles that, that a white person may have, or, you know, or a black person may have to submitting to differences of authority. I think that is, I think that is good, and that is something that that we need to be aware of. But how do you how do you see that shift happening? I know it's going to take baby steps and years and years of intentionality. But how do you see that culture shifting? I mean, it maybe speak to that right here in in Rocky Mount. How do you see that shifting in, in the midst of what what we're living right now? Great question. So. Um, I have been a part of many race conversations, like many race conversations. And I have found that the biggest struggle is that when black people are fully honest on what needs to be done, white people would prefer to pacify themselves and not deal with the real issue. So if black people say, hey, church, let's get together and talk about the systemic issues we have in the church, the race issues we have in the church, the answer is no, 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 no. Let's get together and eat dinner together as families. And no, 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 no. Let's just like get together and have fun conversations or let's get together and do an event that looks like we've overcome our race issues. But don't talk to me about like the consistent issues the black people have had when they try to walk into white spaces. Right. So, for example, we do Team 252 every year, which is a phenomenal mission trip phenomenal mission trip locally where 100 plus students get together and we stay at First Baptist downtown. They've always been phenomenal hosts. Um, before we do that trip, I have a seminar with my students. And in that seminar, I train them on how to engage with white people who are offensive, mm -hmm. like every single year. It's, a, it's an hour long seminar with their parents about this is what you're going to experience. Like, I don't know, we have not been there this year, but I can pretty much guarantee you that these are things you're going to have to deal with. And this is how you have to respond as a black person. I don't think the white youth pastors are having those conversations. Um, and if they are, it might be about how to be sensitive, but not how to be offensive, like how to not be offensive. Um, our youth ministry as a black church, our youth ministry is like racial topics is, are built into our ministry. We do MLK competition, um, for Toku competition with the city, which is amazing. And our students, are, are, they have to dig into social dynamics of equality and equity and figure out solutions to how they're going to apply them. We make sure that when we do mission trips that, yeah, we're going to do the mission trip. And of course, yes, we're going to do the tourism thing. But we're also going to deal with, like, in history, we went to Philadelphia every year. In history, this is how race played a role in our society. And we're going to go to Howard University and see students protesting and, and talk to the leaders of those protests. Like, it's built into our dynamic. I don't know if white churches are doing that. And I think that if everyone's not educating themselves, 
some people are going to show up ignorant and think that they're smart and think that they have content. And when they do, it's going to create tension. So I think that a huge shift that could happen is people being honest about learning the truth, like learning the truth and then running with that. Um, it hurts. The truth is not pretty, <laughs> right? The truth is not pretty, but it's worth learning and it's worth living it out. You know, I had a conversation Kyle, with, with some friends of mine who are, are, are just wonderful uh, ministers, and they were talking about how, you know, they are people of color, and they talked about how that, you know, they have to have, con they had to have conversations with their own kids, not just their students in the ministry context, but with their own kids about, you know, what to expect and, you know, ways to not be offensive, those types, some of the same things you just shared. And, you know, and, and maybe you and Stephanie both can share your thoughts with me on this, but... I wonder if it would be helpful if white people would start having the same conversations with their kids about ways to not be offensive and not to be degrading and ways in which God has called us to walk the same planet with the same intent and, you know, uniqueness about them. I wonder if that, that would be helpful because I mean, to be fully transparent, I mean, that was never, or I'm, a, I'm a white male living in America, right? That was never a conversation that was ever had with me was, you know, the, the awareness of everything that goes on around me and that someone that I might be perceived differently as someone of color is, you know, in the very same situation. I mean, maybe speak, you guys speak to that and see if you think, you know, that would be something that's helpful. I think the only uniqueness that ever got talked about with me growing up as far as things I could expect to happen is the role of being a female. Um, but I don't know that that even I don't have the disadvantage of being a black female. You know, I've worked with people who have, and I'm like, dang girl, you really do have both of those working against you. That is ridiculous because credentially you should have beat me out and you didn't. Um, but then I look around, I'm like, but credentially I should have beat him out and I didn't <laughs> because he's a white guy. He can play poker with him. You know, like that's how it felt. But I don't, outside of that, like, I don't ever remember having conversations of, let's talk about how to not be offensive. Um, Kyle, I'm going to be real honest about being in high school with you for a minute, because I can remember thinking, he is about the whitest black boy I have ever met. And like saying things and never considering at 17 that that would have been something offensive that I said about you. But here's being at 35 and more truth being unveiled and uncovered and spoken with in the world. I'm like, that might have been about the ugliest thing I could have said about him and didn't know it. You know, so I'm thinking like what kinds of vocab, what phrases, what things do you wish that me as a white mom would have that conversation at home? You know, you're talking about having it with your students at church and absolutely we should be having those conversations at church too. But I'm the firm believer that we have to have same conversations at home. Like, I don't want it to be the church's responsibility to talk about it. I want to do due diligence as a mom to kids growing up in the same world as your kids. So I guess my question is, what do you wish I would tell my own kids? You know, because honestly, growing up, I never, I always felt like I wasn't racist because I had black friends and not just you. You know, but I'm like, I'm not racist. Like, no, yeah. <laughs> sir, I am not. <laughs> because yeah. I grew up right around the corner 
from black people who I rode the school bus with. And every field trip, my mom was the mom who got black kids in our group because they knew that she was going to treat them with kindness. But I did not grow up in a racist family. But now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, did I? You know, like, you're right. If you had walked into the church I grew up in as a kid, you're right. You probably would have been seen as a mission opportunity and not just as another boy who loves Jesus. You know, so I'm like, oh my gosh, what is the shift that I can be a part of? Both mostly as a mom, but also as a church staff member at a white church that happens Mm -hmm. to be in downtown Rocky Mount. There you go. There's your loaded multiple facet question. (laughs) (laughs) Those like, y'all, okay, one, I'm loving these questions and I'm loving these perspectives because Stephanie, um, the every black, just about every black person who I know who um, has figured out how to assimilate into whiteness or mainstream America, which we use as a context, which just means white America, um, we have all been said, all been told, you sound white, you act white, as if it was a compliment, right? Because being the opposite of black is good. So you sound like one of us. So welcome. We'll allow you to succeed, right? And I would say, like, when people would say to me then, I was not aware. And I think, like, that's the, one of the biggest things, like, people need to understand that we are in a place of ignorance. And even if you think you have it figured out, even if your family has told you reasons why black people are in this situation, white people in this situation, like realize that even you are ignorant, okay? And bias is not because you're a horrible person. Bias comes because of a lack of education, a lack of exposure. But once you are educated and made aware of something, once you are exposed, your bias is now because you choose to not be ignorant, but you choose to walk in stupidity. You choose to walk in the opposite of knowledge. And I think that the biggest thing that anyone can do is learn the truth. Like learn the truth outside of your silo. Learn the truth outside of your content. It's not just saying, oh, I'm gonna stop listening to Fox News and listen to MSNBC or no, it's not about like perspectives of media. It's not about perspectives of news. It's about actual truth. And I find it difficult for anyone who, who sees the truth to hear the truth, unless to to ignore to think that the truth doesn't exist, unless young ruler, right? The rich young ruler very much so was like, "Hey Jesus, I want to be saved." Okay, you want to be saved? Jesus says, "Great, give up your identity, give up all the things that made you comfortable in life, and follow me." And he said, mm, "I'm sad." He heard the truth. He didn't want to change his perspective, and he wanted to hold on to his privilege. He wanted to hold on to his status in society. And instead, he walked away. And so um, I think that as a family, as a church, as an individual, the biggest thing you can do is learn the truth about the gospel and how it really does transform the human being. Like learn the full truth. Because remember, people who enslaved other people heard the gospel and labeled themselves as Christians. So if they had that type of blind spot, if they thought they could enslave people and love Jesus, do you really think that you were absolved from the possibility of being influenced more by culture, right? We all have something we need to let go of. And then the other is learn the truth about society. And when you start to see what women go through, when you start to see what black people go through and you start to see the dynamics of these systems that are in place, it'd be pretty difficult for you to be like, oh, well, sorry. You either are going to be like the rich young ruler, walk away and push away the truth because you didn't want to hear it change, or you're going to be like people who are transformed 
by the gospel and by like just plain knowledge and say I have to live differently and impact people differently. So learn truth. I think what gets even, I guess the other challenge in that for people, and it's a constant rub here, here meaning I sit in the jeans home right now, um, is it gets so difficult to remember that we are created to look like God, not that God looks like us, you know? So like when you're teaching truth, it's hard to go, okay, so let's talk about how this is true for everyone and not, I don't even know how to put into words what I'm trying to say, y'all. But just that I think so oftentimes we let the gospel look like us in our context. Like this mm -hmm. must be what these Bible verses mean because this is what I know. Mm -hmm. Versus, hey, how, how do you read this? And yeah. hey, friend across the street who grew up in South Africa, like you tell me how this reads to you. But instead, it's like we keep circling up with people who have the same context as us and never allowing multiple voices to unpack it together. Because I think if we could do that, the truth becomes even more alive. Um, Absolutely. And I feel like it's just hard to separate ourselves from it, you know? It, so I'm like, gosh, I need to sit in a Bible study, like you were saying. I need to walk into a space of people who aren't like me and be like, you know what? I'm going to sit here until it's real awkward. And then I'm going to sit even longer, <laughs> yeah. you know, and like hear what someone else's perspective on those same set of scriptures is, because I think listening to a female talk about it is going to sound different than either one of you talking about it. Um, and Kyle talking about it, it's going to be totally different than me or Daniel because he brings something to the table. We don't. Um, so I just yeah. feel like it'd be incredible just to sit at a really diverse table and unpack scripture but somehow we still segregate ourselves into groups that are just like us. I think we're all guilty of that. Yeah. And I'd say this is really important for the church. Okay. Cause this is how, after having many conversations and having many experiences, this is what I see people do. I see people start off a conversation saying, Hey, I want to, we want to, we want to tackle this. Let's talk truth about it. It's like, great, let's do that then someone speaks truth i'm talking about just social history like this is what black people are trying to deal with trying to get a voting voice in america and people say mm, i don't really know if i like that and then it says well it's exactly it's actually true like voter id was in north carolina the people who did it literally said they did it because of racial differences it's, there's no question about why voter id in north carolina came about gerrymandered it's all on document and there's no question about it. it's not just because people want to make sure citizens have a vote and then he said well i just believe that the gospel can change everything so i'm going to pray for you and you pray for me and we have to stop divesting ourselves of the task of work and just acting like oh i'm going to pray and use the, stop using the gospel as an excuse to not do work yeah. you know like in the same way that we have to evangelize and tell people about christ Jesus says, get out in the world and talk to them. You can't just sit at home and pray that people will get to know him. Yes, your prayer is powerful and God can send someone to go and present the gospel. But he says, go into the world and preach the gospel. And when it comes to like racial reconciliation, Christians have the formula. Like we know because we've been reconciled to God. So we know it takes acknowledging and confessing sin and it takes repenting from that sin and then letting someone who doesn't even deserve like jesus took on the, the brunt of it right and so 
being reconciled takes hard work and then restoring each other to a place where we're all in good standing. That's the formula for reconciliation. We know that. And we need to apply that socially. And we need to make sure that we reconcile ourselves to one another, but we have to do the work. And I will say this and I mean it, no matter how often black people say things, if white people aren't willing to listen to it and believe it and then work on it, the conversations don't matter. I've had with Team 252, many youth ministries literally pull away and their youth no longer exposed to racial diversity, no longer exposed to the truth of, the, of how all these things work in Christ and the social dynamics. And now those youth are probably in this space trying to figure out how do I navigate all of this upheaval but Team 252 was literally meant to give the formulas and to help people work through it. And I've lost so many friends. I would say this, most white people who I know who are about the work of reconciliation and becoming anti-racist, about 90% of them say my friends and my family and my church family walked away from me, told me I was wrong. And now here I am understanding the truth of the social dynamics and want to do work, but I'm alone because all of my folks said no. And it's hard, but it's worth it. And um, I think as a family, as a Christian family, regardless of black, white, whatever your race and stuff may be, we have to realize that our brothers and sisters aren't just sitting around lying to us. There's something wrong. And if the family is worth it, don't just show up. Don't, don't, allow, don't ask an abused family member to show up and smile because it makes you feel comfortable at Thanksgiving dinner. Deal with the abuse, deal with the issue. And then, then you can truly sit at a table and the smiles are genuine, the love is sincere, and the relationship is good. Kyle, Kyle two words I heard you say that just encouraged me is, um, well, three words, really hard work and educate. Um, and I think going, circling back to that um, question that we, we talked about a few minutes ago about our families, um, not only being educated themselves, our parents and adults not being educated themselves, but also then extending that and having conversation with our students and our children. Um, that can have a huge ripple effect, right? But I do think that it's important for us all to hear um, is that is we've got to also be very careful with the sources in which we are educating ourselves over. I mean, you yes. hit you hit the nail on the head a minute ago when you said that you know we really got to dig into the truth. And I mean, look at look at the life of Jesus and the way he approached truth and love, even when it was hard to do so, and he was challenged and you know even abused. Um, but I often feel like that 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 requires hard work. You know, we first of all it requires us to really dig in, right? Dig in to see what our Bible really teaches us. But it's much easier for us to, you know, scroll through our social media feeds or listen to whatever perspective, you know, this news, uh, news station gives us on the matter and then form our own like Danielology, for lack of better terms, on the situation without really digging into the theology of the situation and also really spending time with uh, our brothers and sisters of a different race and understanding from their perspective. Um, on the situation. So I think that it's important for our, our families, us, all of us to, to maybe take a look at that um, and then circling back to that hard work. I mean, it's going to take some intentionality. It's not something we're going to say, okay, I, I'm just going to do that now. You know, it's going to be something that we, we have really got to choose day after day after day so that we can get to that point at Thanksgiving and smile genuinely without this sense of fakeness. You know, that's just be honest without being fake about it. And not wanting to come across, in, you know, in a in a, a way that isn't real. Um, yeah. And and I say we have to alleviate ourselves from the pressure of trying to change ourselves within a day. Like absolutely. I, 
can I share my story about like my journey and understanding like blackness and being comfortable around with myself as a black man and then also honoring blackness as a culture as people and realizing that there's value in all of us like that was a year that was years of journey that was years of interaction and so I don't think anyone no one should expect people to get all of the nuances like said you said with language and stuff is is less about the language and the nuance and more about understanding the concepts and when you understand the concepts of humanity and you understand the concepts of equity, not just equality, but equity, then we'll start to really get some, some traction. And then you look up two years later um, and your spaces are different and your language is different, your understanding is different. We can't undo hundreds of years, a hundred plus years in the American church of segregation um, within a day, but we can make sure that the next generation and the generation after that um, doesn't have to go through the same experiences of ignorance and separation and segregation that we're going through. And that that should be our goal, changing over time, because immediate flips oftentimes mean that we do showings of equality without our hearts actually being changed. Yeah, it's a lot easier to take a picture and post it and make it look like that there, it's there, but not really there. Yeah. Sure. Or just put light <laughs> when someone else did it. Yeah. You know? Well, Stephanie yeah. liked that picture. This is how she feels. And I'm like, <laughs> Friend, that's not taking a stand <laughs> but you know it's like people are like well i've liked every black lives matter post this week so therefore like i've i've got a voice out there and i'm like you said nothing like <laughs> as, but we live in a world where if i did it on social media i've done it yeah you know like if i posted today this is my healthy lunch but what i didn't post was my dessert i ate healthy today you know I, like all these filters and all of these like we're just not nothing's real on social media yeah. not really like there's no yeah. such thing as reality tv somebody set something up to make that happen for you but i feel like we're so proud of ourselves for living it out online I'm like but did you just it's, cut it's that guy out on, in traffic like you didn't yeah i don't know it's just holding ourselves accountable more than just virtually yeah, and I will, Daniel, I'll share this with you. There's a Google Doc that went around, some people created, um, and that just really gave resources of education. Because I know that it can be overwhelming. And it's like, I've seen people share stuff and it was like, oh, that's false. And that told they said, I didn't even know. I thought it was real. It's like, no, that's not real, right? And so like, there's a, a book, a, a list of books, documentaries, like 13th on Netflix. If you got Netflix, just go watch it. Um, just Mercy, watch that. So people can really see like the social, the current social issues. Um, get rid of any preconceived notions of what you think is good or bad and start to look at the reality of our history and our societies. Think in Rocky Mount, think about the red line that happened and how Lincoln Park was the first black neighborhood where people could buy, could buy homes, but that had in itself to be a project because black people in Rocky Mount were allowed to buy homes. And about how when MLK came here and he said, I have his, I did his I Have a Dream speech here first, like people were fired from their jobs because they went there and how my mother-in-law integrated schools here, how Northern Nash in the 90s had to have a white um, student body president and a black student body president. This is not that far away. And how I have a close friend who had to fight for her son to take AP classes. He ended up graduating top of his class and had a full ride scholarship to Wake Forest, but she, he was not allowed to take AP classes. And then her daughter who ended up graduating third in her class, she had to fight for her to be able to take AP classes. And a lot of that is because that's in the school system. And so it's like every part of our society 
is dealing with race issues. And it's a lot of because of the way we've been trained to perceive people and we can't think it's just done. My mother-in-law now works with the people who chased her out of school. You know, like she, she, they smile at her as if everything was done and gone, but she has that hurt in her heart because they never did the work of reconciliation and just said, let's show up to dinner and smile. And so we have to like really start doing more aware, like doing more work to be aware of the truth. Um, and when we do that, we'll realize that there's some easy things we can do. Um, and then we'll realize that there's some hard things we have to tackle, um, but it's worth the journey one step at a time. And then Hollywood. That's a whole nother podcast, but I'm like, I'm going to need you to help. <laughs> because I know that's where some of my preconceived notions came from. You know, where the things we're watching and therefore, I mean, let's just yeah. be honest, the black skin guy was the bad guy in like most of the movies of my lifetime growing up. Therefore, if I'm on the street with someone who looks like that, is he bad? Yes. You yeah. know, and like that's not, that's not fair. So I'm like, if we can take small steps, yeah, we might small get to Hollywood. That'd be awesome because like, it's a vicious circle of reflecting life and us reflecting Hollywood. Like if we can bust absolutely. that circle. And Stephanie, I was looking at, cause I'm obsessed with old TV shows. Like I just finished up watching all of Mary Tyler Moore and like, it's crazy. So yeah, like I just always go back and I keep looking at these shows and looking for a black person right? And Mary Tyler Moore had Gordy, which I'm not sure if anyone understands that context, but oh, yeah. like, okay, great. So, but the, night, man. the sitcoms of the 90s, when you look at all these things that are popular, like you could have easily cast a black person. This isn't a race-based issue. You just chose not to. And we need to understand like the idea of white supremacy isn't hoods and pitchforks. Like that's not what it is. It's about the idea that whiteness and white culture and being white is better than being other, right? And so like black people, we name our children most of the time based on the fact that if I put, if my child puts their name on a job application, will it be thrown away? And so that's how we have, we have to think about those things when we name our children, right? Because when we say names like Shaquisha or Shamika, all of these preconceived notions, because it's identifiably black, all these preconceived notions pop up. I cannot tell you how many white friends tell me they worked in offices, law offices, and all these other places where they just threw the applications away in the 2000s because they identified that person as a black person. And so we, like, we black women straighten their hair. The natural hair revolution that's going on, like being comfortable with literally how God made you, that's new ish right like black women are taught to straighten your hair in our society in our like in black culture black like the darker skin you are sometimes the less beautiful you're seen right like naomi campbell has had to be the one when tyra banks showed up on the scene it was like oh we already have a black supermodel can you really and they pitted tyra banks against naomi campbell when you have hundreds of models but we can only have one black popular one so it's like every ask if you were to search right now bride on Google, most of them would be white. If you were to search beauty on Google, most of it would show white things. And it's like, black people are always a subset. To find our stuff, we have to go down a certain aisle on the, on the store, while the white stuff is just there because that's the mainstream. And so like, it's important for us to understand like the smallest things like that to the bigger things all teach our psyche that there's certain things that are good and certain things that are bad. And even if you look at the, black, the baby doll test, like little black kids just feel like if it's a lighter baby doll, they're prettier, they're smarter, they're nicer. And these are black kids. 
And so it, it confuses me, like when white people try to say like, like, no, I never have a bias. I never thought that way. But it's like everyone in our society is, in, is affected by this dynamic. And we have to be honest about it and then do the work to undo it. I'm sitting here thinking, taking all that in. I'm thinking about something you said a minute ago, Kyle, about, you know, the this we have to kind of have a clean slate and start building our own, you know, thoughts and realizing what it is that we actually are portraying in the way we respond and, and all. And wow, that's tough. You know, that's that's it's just the awareness of it. Mm -hmm. um, think yeah. about Go ahead. I must say my wife and I have a photography and videography business. And we know when we do a, a bridal show, um, we get so many people walking past our booth. We have amazing prices and amazing product. And I'm not just saying that because it's us, like people, it's just, it's just a reality. But people walk past our booth and go to the photographer next to us who has a lesser product. You know, um, Danielle was on a phone call with a state organization for photographers and videographers and just wedding vendors. And most of them say, oh yeah, we don't put our face on our website because we know once people see that we're black, they're not going to hire us. Like, that's just a known thing. And if, <laughs> like, that's no, that's our experience that we have to build. So one person said, I've been doing my business for 10 years and it's been really good business, but it wasn't until last year I felt comfortable putting my face on my website because I knew that when white people came to it, they would just bypass it or people would think that my stuff is subpar. I can't tell you how many times I've showed up at events and people ask me, are you friends of the bride and groom? Because as a professional photographer, I could not possibly be black. Like the black, the white people don't have that issue. People who go to country, um, country clubs and do weddings, thousands of dollars of equipment and all this kind of stuff. And the one black guy said, you know, if I went there a hundred times, 90 of those times, I would stop when leaving. And people ask to check my stuff to make sure to check to see if I was stealing it. The white people in the forum said, I have never even thought about that. So it's like, this is 2020. This is our experience. And oftentimes, and I think that honestly, black people have done a disservice to white people um, because all of the social media posts you're seeing now and all of our experience that we're sharing, that is in our head all the time but we don't talk about it to appease and ease white people. And so oftentimes you may think, oh no, this isn't going on, but your friend who you play football with, that you play sports with, the person who you hang out with, when you leave that space with them, this is their reality. This is our, this is our reality. This is, our, this is the truth of what we're going through. And, um, but we had just haven't been talking about it. And so people may feel overwhelmed by the social media presence and overwhelmed how often people are talking about stuff but let me tell you this is our weekly conversations in our living room this is our daily experiences when we walk through the community so what you're experiencing you feel overwhelmed with with two weeks of social media posts has been our lives mm. it's a hard i feel truth. like there's your closing statement yeah you know like yeah what you feel no. overwhelmed with from just the past few weeks has been my entire 30-ish years of living yeah um and people older than you who have 80 years, but you, Kyle, don't have 80 years yet. Yeah. And yeah. Lord and knows, I pray it is not your 80th birthday that we're still talking about this. <laughs> you know, like it just. That would be the hope. And, and it's sad because like those experiences are even in the church. Like that's the thing is like the space that should be neutralized, the space that should, the gospel should be like wrecking 
and reconciling, we don't like even in the church. I, I'm, if, if the black people in spaces were honest, yes, family love, family church. Like I get it. Like yes, there's community in that, and there's forgiveness in that. But if we were to be fully honest in our awareness, we would be able to identify so many things that we have to deal with and put to the side in order to be in white spaces with church in the church. Kyle, I want to, I know we are, we are out of time today and it's, gosh, it's been so good. Um, it's, but it's been, it felt like drinking from a fire hose, right? There's so much to take in and process. And I, I'm just, I'm thankful for that. Um, so I want to like, end with, with this question. And you, you mentioned a while back in this conversation about baby steps. Um, if you had to name one baby step for us today as people of, of different, you know, backgrounds and of different color and of even serving in different churches and being called into to all of that, what would it be for us? What would it be for our families? What is that baby step on this very day that you, that you would say moves us forward? That is a great question. And if I were to narrow it down, it's a broad brush, but education, um, and I say that it's a very broad brush um, because you have to be educated in multiple spaces. And I think that um, the gospel and we as Christians know, like I shouldn't have to qualify this, but I have to all the time because I find that white people shut me out when I don't. The gospel is preeminent. It is number one. It transforms all things and Jesus can fix every heart while laws can't. Okay, so I'll say that up front. We get that, right? Um, then you so educate yourself on that and educate yourself on the fact that like the church has never been anti-social justice everything the church does is about work like in terms of ministry from um homeless shelters to food pantries to hospitals to colleges the church has always been about social work the problem is that once you start talking about race then the the white church says wait a second no um so educate yourself on like the the gospel and educate yourself on the history of the church Educate yourself by digging into books, by digging into scholarly articles, um, figure out people. There are black, this black thought, none of these things are new. And so you can go back from to James Baldwin, um, to Malcolm X, to Angela Davis, the Black Panther, probably like none of the concepts you're learning are new, but how they were taught to you was that all those black people were enemies of the state. And that's why the Black Panther Party was classified as terrorist, but the KKK still is not. So you have to educate yourself on that. Educate yourself on complete just normal history. Um, you know, the Wilmington massacre and when the democratic government was overthrown in Wilmington, North Carolina, but we didn't learn about that in North Carolina history. But I can tell you that the longleaf pond is a state tree. You know, like you have to do the work of educating yourself because all the systems of education that we have are tainted by pacifying whiteness and looking over like the struggle that so many some outright just evil people did and some that were well-intentioned but had cultural blind spots um you know and it's okay and this is gonna be hard one no white person should be feeling guilty and shame about living life today like we get it like you didn't enslave people like you don't have to feel this white guilt of that um, my thing is that we have to be in a space where we, we don't embrace what people did in the past, but we start tearing down all the consequences of it today. So that's the baby step. But you can't do that 
if you're not educated on it and if you don't if you aren't learning on it as a man when i learn about the experiences of women it is my job to check other men on how ridiculous we are and how we have been like our whole society was built to oppress women and suppress them so that we can be elevated so I didn't set up the fact that women didn't get the vote right to vote until late 1900s. I didn't do that. But I'm also not going to let anyone pass a law that oppresses women's votes. Like, that's my task now is to fight against the stuff that's happening today. I cannot do that if I'm not educated. And what seems like a new concept, but it's just really recycle oppression and recycle racism. If I'm not educated on the past, I won't identify it today. You know, school choice sounds great until you realize that Rocky Mountain Academy was literally built because people didn't want to integrate. That all these Christian schools that pop up, it's just white segregation, right? So all that sounds nice and school choice and families have the right to choose where their kids go, yeah, sure. But if you don't realize that as the church, the reason why those things existed was to resegregate in a legal way, I'm going to embrace it. So we have to educate ourselves. Kyle, thank you for your time today, man, for your, for your wisdom and for your relationship with God and for your education, right, for helping us along this journey. And I, I hope that we are, are doing the same for you because we are in this together, right? We are in this together. And again, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. God yeah. called us for, for such a time as this, and this is the time and space God has called us to live and minister in, uh, in so many different contexts. Um, so this has been been so, so very helpful. So the way I want to end today, and I think Stephanie is okay with this, Kyle, I'm going to ask you if you, and we're going to bookend it with prayer. And I'm going to ask you if you would uh, just say a prayer for us and just, just let's give it all to God and we'll finish up. Absolutely. Let's talk to Jesus, y'all. God, I thank you so much for the fact that you are amazing. Um, you astound us with your love. You astound us with the work that you did in order for us to experience your love. You chased us down, God, you draw, drew us into you. And before you even did the work of drawing, God, you did the work of death. You did the work of being crucified. You did the work of justifying us on the cross and opening up the opportunity for us to then have love and to then have relationship restored with God. So Jesus, I thank you so much for all that you have done and all that you are doing. And I pray that as believers, that we would start to do and to mimic and to model our lives and our interactions based on your example, not just how you lived um, when you were performing miracles and loving people, but God, the example that you gave us on the fact that there had to be some really hard, tough personal work before we extended hands for reconciliation. And Father, I pray that you would guide each of us, um, help us to understand each other, um, help us to understand each other in view of you, and God, I pray that you would help us to understand that humanity doesn't have to be qualified. Um, we are all image bearers. And we don't have to be defensive when someone else gives their perspective. We just have to be willing to learn and to listen and be transformed and changed based on um, what they're communicating. And Father, I pray, like Paul taught um, Timothy, that if anyone preaches any other gospel other than that which we were taught in scripture by you, that we would really throw that away and we would turn a deaf ear to destruction, we would turn a deaf ear to distortion, and that we not conflate and confuse the gospel of Christ with the work of racial justice, with the work of social justice, 
but we realize that it's because we're reconciled in you that we are then spawned on to do work. And so, Father, I thank you so much for the fact that you are gracious enough to allow us to have these relationships and conversations with each other. And I'm thankful for the collective church. I'm thankful for Acts chapter 2, um, verse 42 type of koinonia and community. And Father, I pray that as you intended the church to be is what we would strive to be, um, both through your supernatural Holy Spirit empowerment and also through our choices to um, deal with sin issues and our choices to do the work to reflect who you are. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.